0: Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. One of the things I realized this week is that I haven't been to the barber shop in a long time. Um, I'm, I'm in need of a haircut, but with, with COVID and the pandemic, we've sort of done those things at home for this season of our lives, and it reminded me as I'm thinking about my hair of, a, of the time that I was first getting to know guys at the barbershop by my house. I've frequented this place, Urban Touch, for um, the last few years um, that we've lived in the neighborhood, and. Um, one of the funny stories of the beginning of my time there is uh, they were trying to figure out how they were going to cut my hair i'm kind of like the lone white dude in that place i mean there's a few other um guys like like me but but i'm the lone white guy at the barber shop and I, i even asked at one point hey do you cut a lot of white guys hair or not and and of course um my man um pork he he knows how to cut hair Um, But what he said is, I need somebody to sort of like template who, you know, your haircut should be like. And at that point, conversation around the shop started to get rowdy because they were trying to find my doppelganger. It was like, which celebrity, which person does Trent most look like? And then let's use that as a way (laughs) of um, framing how we should cut his hair. And what they arrived at is, my doppelganger is none other than adam levine and i'm just gonna say i think i was a little bit honored like that guy looks pretty good um but the only real you know like overlap i think we have is i mean i'm a i'm a sort of trim white guy with a small head like him (laughs) so um adam if you're listening to this you do have a small head like me um and if we get a nice fade um we look a little bit alike so um (laughs) there's something fun about doppelgangers um, the people, the celebrities that you may look a little bit like. And perhaps there's somebody in your life or in your community who you go, yeah, there's somebody that they really resemble. Well, in our passage today, what we're going to see is that the crowds and then even the people around Jesus are, are a bit wondering, who is the ganger of Jesus? I mean, like, is he like somebody else that has come before? And of course, they're not thinking of celebrities. They're thinking of figures. People, men of God, who have come before, people like Elijah, or perhaps even John the Baptist, as we'll read. And this whole sort of framing of who is Jesus, the identity question we've been asking, gets new light shed onto it, as we see in Mark chapter 6. But I think there's a real parallel for us because celebrity culture in our time and certainly um, the broader culture as well is in some ways conflicted about leaders. Um, We're conflicted. We love and hate those who have a platform. Much critique for them, um, but also we're drawn to them. And despite sort of the rugged individualism of our time, there is something that remains within us. Despite the hurt we've often encountered at the hands of leaders who are bad, there's something within us that wants to still be led. However, we can't seem to find a leader who won't let us down. We, like the people in Jesus' day, have been hurt by those who have led us, whether they're locally or nationally. And we long to be led by a leader who won't let us down. And today we're going to see King Jesus is a leader unlike any other. And he's leading a movement. I don't know if you've caught that over the last few chapters of Mark, but crowds upon crowds of people are following him, learning from him, listening to him. And he is, is, is bringing a kingdom movement upon Israel. And right now, as he's, almost threatens to turn the establishment upside down, Mark wants us to know that you and I are invited to the king's feast. You and I are invited to the king's feast. But in order to see the feast, of course, as is often the case in Mark's gospel, you can't just sort of look at the side dish, right? You've got to zoom out to see the whole plate. You've got to take in the collection of stories, the ingredients that Mark is using to fix an amazing feast to help satisfy us in the one who alone we can be satisfied in. So here's what I want to do today. I want to show you three things from Mark chapter 6, and let's start with point number one, that there is a remarkable opportunity, a remarkable opportunity extended. In Mark chapter 6, we're shown the remarkable opportunity that the 12, the original apostles, disciples of Jesus had. They were called to be with the King. They were They were to travel with the king. They were to exercise the authority of the king. They were to be sent by the king. And you see here this parallel from chapter 3. Let me read it to you. In the initial calling of the disciples, it's almost a second calling, an additional one here. And he went, this is Mark 3, chapter 3, verse 13. And he went on up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, and so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And then, of course, it goes on to list the names of the twelve that he appointed. But now, again, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, we, sat, we see, And he called the twelve and began to send them out. Remember, this is what he promised. He would call them to be with him, right? And then he would send them out for him, right? So he calls them and sent them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them, verse 8, to take nothing on their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart, until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they cast out many demons, and they, so they went out, proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many of those who were sick and healed them. I uh, remember a point early on in my um, journey in ministry Um, where I had a conversation with Laura and we were thinking big picture about the future and just going, hey, if there was ever the opportunity for us to move or to go and be with this leader or in this church community, to learn from it for the sake of the future, we would drop a hat and go. And I remember listing, you know, three, four, five different places, different leaders, different opportunities where if that was to ever come along by any means possible, we would jump and go. And as it happened, one of those opportunities actually came, calling randomly. I think it was an email first and then a call randomly inviting me to consider a position. And then all of a sudden, we're wrestling with leaving a ministry that we're loving and growing in, but also saying, this remarkable opportunity is before us. For our own development and good, we've got to go. So here you have the remarkable opportunity that the disciples have to learn from, to be sent by the Lord Jesus. And if you look, hidden within here, you see him saying, take nothing with you, which is to say, I will provide for you as you go. And you see Jesus encouraging them to enter a house and stay there, meaning, find somewhere that will host you, somewhere that you can establish as a home base for the kingdom of God in that community. And he says, listen, when you go, I'm sending you with authority. I give authority to you. And then if he says, if someone doesn't receive you, go ahead and shake the dust off your feet of the testimony. Meaning, I'll stand by you, even if they reject you. And then finally, you see this incredible promise that Jesus will work through them. The very healing ministry and the powerful signs and wonders of the kingdom that Jesus has been doing all around Israel are now being done through the 12. This is a clue to the kind of leader that Jesus is. He's not a leader who withholds, but a leader who gives. He is not one who is um, clamming for himself, but one who who offers to others. He is not one who has to be, He he is in the center, but he gives away opportunity to these first disciples that he taught. This is an incredible strategy for the sake of the kingdom, for the movement spreading. And it's for the good of the development of these future leaders within the kingdom whom Jesus was training to serve after he was gone. But I think what you see here is despite the pressing needs of the crowds, Jesus is training the twelve. And although their calling was specific to that time and place, the invitation Mark sort of puts before us is, we have the remarkable opportunity as well to follow Jesus. That these same patterns of calling to be with him, of learning from him, of being sent by him, even with his authority are the gospel truths available to us that we have the opportunity to follow Jesus. Have you taken that remarkable opportunity? The second point that I want to show you in chapter 6 is not about remarkable opportunity, but about two royal opposites that Mark puts on display here. In Mark 6, these opposite kings reveal their character, and their character is made plain plain by the feasts that they host, the way in which they lead, and even the company that they keep. Now we have sort of the return to the doppelgangers, okay? King Herod, verse 14, heard of it. What did he hear of? That Jesus had sent his disciples out, and now the disciples are doing all of these incredible things. So it's not just he heard of Jesus, but he heard of Jesus' ministry extending even further. For the name of Jesus had become known. And some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of those of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has been raised. For Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John, and wanted to put John to death. But she could not, for for Herod feared him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed because he heard him gladly. Interesting. All right, so here we are. On to the doppelgangers. Who is Jesus like? Who is he like Elijah? Is he like John the Baptist? Is he a prophet of old? But, but Jesus is perplexing to Herod, because John was perplexing to Herod. Something about Herod wanted to receive John, but he was also incredibly challenged by John, and he couldn't receive. Herod is incredibly conflicted as the king. But an opportunity came says in verse 21, When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles, here's his crowd, his nobles and the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee, the important ones. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in, Herodias' daughter, immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came. And they took his body, the body of John the Baptist, and laid it in a tomb. What a gruesome story, right? But here, it seems to stand oddly out of place unless you take it in parallel to the story that comes immediately after it. Because you have not just the royal king Herod and his feast, but you have an additional feast happening in chapter six. The doppelgangers of Jesus, of course, are Elijah, or one of the prophets, or perhaps Elijah makes sense because the, the corruption of Herod is so similar to Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel, of course, this wicked queen back in Israel's history really reminisces um, Herodias. But but here you see not just a a hint of Elijah coming, but you see a foreshadowing of someone far greater coming. Let's read about the second king's feast. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away with yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and had no leisure to even eat. And they went away in the boat to to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them a way to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy food for themselves, something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it for them to eat? And he said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And And he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves of, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And They took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and a fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." What a remarkable story. Jesus feeding thousands of people, more than 5,000. If they were counting the men, there would have been women and children there as well, listening gladly to the teaching of Jesus. But, but, But the miracle is that this king holds a feast in a desolate wilderness place and provides for far more than King Herod could ever. Do you see the contrast of the two feasts? Jesus is presenting himself, or perhaps you could say Mark retelling the story, is helping his readers understand that it's not merely a prophet like the ones of old. It's not even Elijah, who is probably better referred to as John the Baptist. Jesus himself says that at one point. But he's more like Elisha, the one who a double portion of the Holy Spirit is resting upon, and more like In fact, not just a prophet, but the king of all kings, like the king David himself. Do you see the hit? You see, David was the good shepherd of Israel for a season. But even David says, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? in green pastures. Don't miss the anecdotal detail. Jesus instructs them to lie down on the green grass. Right? He leads them, he feeds them, he teaches and guides them. He's even in some measure protecting these crowds by giving them food so that they don't have to go away empty and hungry. Jesus is the greater King David. That's what this story is showing you, that that Herod's feast pales in comparison to Jesus' feast. Herod can't handle a small gathering of nobles and people that he's invited, but Jesus can host an overrun crowd with thousands of people he hasn't invited. Herod is swayed by the pressures of the people, and he leaves them used. That's probably how they felt. But Jesus stands above and unfazed with the pressure and criticism of everyone. Jesus is the one who gives to the people, leaving them satisfied. But Herod surely was the one who took from the, from the people, taxing them greatly. Jesus is the one who gives his authority to the people because he's so secure. We can even rest in his security. But, but Herod's the one who hoards his authority and he's in, even, in, even in fear of people in his own family. Living in insecurity. Do you see the feast of the King? But King Jesus can spread a feast in the wilderness. King Jesus can offer you to lie down in green pastures. King Jesus can restore your soul. King Jesus can lead you in dark times and deep valleys. King Jesus can spread a table in the presence of your enemies. King Jesus can give you a feast at any time, at any moment. King Jesus can invite you to stay a while. Because he so longs to be with you and has compassion on you. David, the great king, is the one who sang, The Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. And he speaks in his song of none other than Jesus, the great king, who is the good shepherd. Do you know him? Do you eat from his table? Or are you feasting elsewhere and hangry? Always. The best part for me of this chapter is the compassion of Jesus. Right? I mean, you can't read the gospels and not sniff the self-interest of the crowds, right? You, you can't sniff their own ignorance and wanting just to see a sign or a wonder or something cool. But Jesus offers to lead them, to teach them. And watch this. Watch this, his grace is so good that it extends to satisfy you even when your motives are at best mixed. That's how good his table is. Nobody comes who comes to him will be excluded. Right? You've got questions, he can work with that, right? You've got a past. Right? He can work through that. You've got been hurt. right? He can heal that. If the chosen apostles of the Lord Jesus then and there were in process, how much more is there freedom for us to be in process? But if we come to him, Jesus is the king. He's he the leader you've always longed for and he's spreading a table for you right now. In this moment. But listen up, faith. Where you place your faith determines at which table you feast. Where you place your faith determines at which table you will feast. Where is your faith? The disciples still don't get it. And through them, Jesus helps us see that the real opposition is actually a matter of the heart. Even those called by him, even those sent by him, have hardened hearts toward him and towards his leadership. There's there's so much more that we could say in the remaining stories in this chapter. I want to read them for you and help you take away what I think Mark is wanting us to in the big picture. Immediately, verse 45 says, His disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd." Jesus dismisses the crowd on his own. He, he's leading. He, he don't need the disciples, right? And after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. Good leaders gotta get away. Jesus wants to be with the Father. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and meant to pass by them. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of, of Gennesaret, and they moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region to bring the, the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And when, wherever he came, in the villages, the cities, and the countryside, they laid sick in the marketplace and implored him that he might even touch a fringe of his garment. And as many as who touched it were made well. So good. And I think the point Mark is trying to make here is that even the closest followers of Jesus have a real opposition. The wind, the waves, the the, the strong headwind against them, making their way painfully across the sea, even their perception that they're alone. These things all are not the real issue for the disciples. The real issue, of course, is that their hearts had not yet received fully the king. Or his feast. This is my summary of Mark chapter 6. And I think this is the proposal the gospel writer is making, because Jesus alone can satisfy. you must come daily to the King's feast you must come daily to the king's feast. The collection of these stories puts together a feast, if you are to borrow the language, and Mark is saying, listen, there's a grander story about the identity of Jesus and about the feast that he offers. And scripture is filled with men and women who throughout history, despite challenging circumstances, feasted and chose to come to the king's table. Family, I've long been inspired by the words of Jeremiah, maybe echoing in the king's Jesus' ears as he taught the crowds. Jeremiah said in the face of his own opposition, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Because Jesus alone can satisfy, we must come the King's table daily are you ready to come to the King's table may you delight as Jeremiah did in the words of the King in the Good Shepherd who spreads out a feast for you to be satisfied let's pray father would you satisfy your people Would you help us to feast on your word and on the one your word points to, which is, of course, you, King Jesus. Send your spirit now to soften our hearts so that we might receive him and yet our souls might be nourished in Jesus' name.